Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Hear these words. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I am a bit of a romantic at heart, I think. Like, you never forget your first kiss. Am I right? Mine was in the back of my grandmother's uh, old white Oldsmobile. I kissed a girl named Jennifer, and then I married her. Uh, It's true. You never forget your first kiss. You never forget your first time reading the book of Romans. Let me tell you about it. I was in high school, and I remember reading the book of Romans. I don't know why I was reading the book of Romans. Maybe I was having trouble sleeping, or I was worried. I don't know. But I remember reading, and at the time, I would mark in my Bible a lot. And I was uh, at a point where I think I had highlighted, like, maybe most of the book of Romans. And it's like, why am I even highlighting this <laughs> anymore? It's not drawing my attention to anything. Just the entire thing is so good. It's so uh, deep and thorough and full of all sorts of good Christian doctrine. I think it's one of, um, uh, there's no, like, uh, most important book of the Bible but I think if you really want to understand Christian thought and Christian doctrine, how it functions in society, you should really read all the Gospels, and you should read the book of Romans. And that'll set you up for understanding how a lot of um, Christian theology functions in the world. And um, uh, I was, I don't know, it must have been 1994, 1995, when I was uh, reading some more of the Bible, and I was sick one day, and my dad would have this habit of bringing home videotapes. Uh, those are like those black cassettes, so you put them in things called VCRs. I don't, some of the young folks, right? And um, I, I, he brought home this two-cassette thing called Schindler's List, and it came out in 93, if you all remember this, the same year Jurassic Park came out directed by the same uh, director, not the same movie. And I was watching Schindler's List, just floored by it. And I uh, that kind of piqued my curiosity in, in history. And I became sort of a history buff ever since and uh, you know, loved everything about it. And I was uh, young and impressionable and I was thinking about um, Schindler and what he did and how he, how he harbored all of these Polish Jews and how that was breaking the law in, in Nazi Germany. And then I was reading the Bible, and I was reading Romans 13, and it said that I should be subject to governing authorities and obey the governing authorities. And then I thought about Schindler, who was breaking the law, and I was like, well, is, is he sinning? And you could see the moral trouble that I was sort of getting myself into. And if you're a student of theology or a student of the Bible, you know that Romans 13 is one of those sticky chapters in our scripture where it can be used um, in certain contexts to uh, condone and approve certain behaviors, certain laws, and certain actions that can be very morally 
I don't know, troubling. It can be difficult to work through and think about. And so today, I don't want to shy away from a difficult conversation. Uh, This is something that we uh, hold as a value here at Chapelwood, is that we have these sort of conversations. And I want to stick to the theme, which is the extremely applicable sermon series. And I can't think of a more uh, applicable thing than the laws that we encounter every single day. For example, when you leave here and you get out in your car, you are already uh, applying yourself to the law of the land. You'll begin driving down the road and you will have a moral question. Can you speed and beat everybody else to the grocery store to get that last jug of milk? (laughs) Is that morally okay or is it morally not okay? Right? And there's fun little things like that and then there's really some if we're being honest, some very, very large, morally complicated questions that we're going to have to grapple with when we look at Romans 13. So let's hop into this. Because there comes a time in our life when we have to ask ourselves some of the big questions. And some of those big questions are, do we serve the living God or do we serve some other God? And there's lots of other gods we can serve, Lots of other gods that we can subject ourselves to. We can serve the God of money, or we can serve the God of power, or we can serve the God of recognition, or we can serve the God of American hard work and independence, or we can serve the God of the comfortable life. We are hopping into this series uh, that's going to be looking at different things, and Romans 13 stands as one of those chapters that gets used for all sorts of things. And if you aren't careful, someone somewhere with power will take Romans 13 and use it against those who do not have any power. And so let's do a crash course on Romans, which I know is a hilarious thing for someone to say. Because let me tell you right now that if you are going to write a commentary someday, you don't start with Romans. You start with one of the much smaller, simpler books of the Bible. And then as you kind of get your theological legs under you, you can move on to, you know, chunkier books of the Bible. But rarely do you go, let's just do a crash course on the book of Romans. It is a challenging book of the Bible, and uh, it has a lot of different themes. But I'll do my best to make some big sweeping statements. First, Romans was written by Paul, and its author, Paul, has a unique relationship to the state. And I'm going to keep using the word state. Right, whether it's a Roman or American or Honduran or Chinese, or it doesn't matter. The authority, the state. Nod your head, you're, you're following with me. And Paul has a unique relationship to the state. Paul is an uh, apostle of Jesus Christ, that same Savior who was murdered by the state. And Paul does not believe that the state is always absolutely right. He does not believe that the state is always absolutely morally defensible. And he does not believe that the, that the state is absolutely always correct or good. Paul understands that the law is made for humankind and not humankind for the law. And Paul understands the law to be really two things. First, he understands it to be the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, the law given by Moses to govern how the Jews are to live as a people and how we as Christians are to conduct ourselves also ethically and morally. It influences our life as we follow Jesus, who followed the law. Paul also understands the law to be the civil law that Rome has for its citizens and its people. Paul is a citizen of Rome, 
And so he subjects himself to the governing authorities there in the land that he finds himself in. Second, let's remember that Paul is writing to a church that has zero access to state power, right? They have zero influence. They are outcasts, misfits, they're nobodies. They are subjects of the state and not stakeholders of the state. The church of that day is not a voting block or a policy influencer. There's no understanding of single voter issues, and there's no evangelical understanding of how to conduct themselves in the voting booth. Christians are considered heathens. They're actually considered atheists, which is hilarious, because they didn't worship the Roman gods, and they didn't pay tribute to Caesar as Lord. And so the state didn't really know what to do with these people who said they followed Jesus because they don't function in Roman society the way that the rest of the Romans did. Third, Paul knows the state. He's a Roman citizen and he will die by Roman beheading because of his status as a citizen. If you were seen as other than a citizen, Romans had another way of executing you and that was called crucifixion. And that's how our Lord and Savior dies at the hand of the state. So uh, Paul knows that the state tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby and that they succeeded when he was a man. And furthermore, Paul will die at the hand of the state, most likely by the emperor Nero. So put simply, Paul's relationship to the state is complicated. He knows a lot about it. He's influenced by it. And Romans 13 is not about just bowing down to the government, saying, we worship you. So this raises a question for me. What is it about? <laughs> if it's not about that, and like, that's not what it means to be subject to the laws and the governing authorities, what is it about? How, how does it function? Friends, Paul understands Christians as he understands himself. Paul says that he is a slave to Jesus Christ. The Greek word there is doulos. He, is a, he binds himself to Jesus and Jesus' household. In the same way, Paul understands that we are to be subjects to those who are authority over us. Furthermore, Paul understands Caesar, whether Caesar is American or Roman, to be a subject to God. So Paul's statement here actually is tyrannical. <laughs> it's treasonous, right? to say that Caesar is not God himself, but Caesar is subject to God, much like we are all subject to God. To claim that Jesus is Lord is to claim that Jesus is the name above all names, the King of Kings. It's a bold statement in that which the subjects the governing authorities to God Almighty. Caesar serves God. The president serves God. The governor serves God and the mayor serves God. If you didn't catch it, we all serve God. We are all subject to God. So when Paul calls Caesar God's servant, he's making a treasonous statement. And so for Paul, Caesar has a function in God's providence. I know, I promise, we're getting there. I gotta do this first, otherwise you will misuse Romans 13 and so will everyone else you know, so I gotta build the case. You, go with me. So Caesar has a function in God's providence. 
Caesar maintains order. He keeps the roads reasonably free of thieves or maybe ice. He sees to it that invading barbarians do not kill people. He makes sure the aqueducts are built and water keeps running, or maybe that the pipes maintain their pressure and the water keeps going. He prosecutes murderers and miscreants, and all that is for the good of the people. And so Paul tells his community to keep your house in good order and to keep your hands to yourself and your head down and do good work, and you will stay out of trouble. Paul is not an anarchist, and he does not endorse vigilantism for Jesus or stupid hot-headedness like burning down buildings to prove your point. He doesn't do those things. And so how are we to understand and work with this New Testament thought and theology today? How are we today, living in 2021, supposed to handle this? And how are we in the midst of Lent supposed to apply and take what we understand as Holy Scripture and live it out as Jesus' followers? I have one summarizing thought for today. One summarizing thought for Romans 13, and it's this. If the law of the land aligns with the goodness of God, the law can be followed. If the law of the land does not align with the goodness of God, it must be resisted and rejected. I'll say it again. If the law of the land aligned with the goodness of God, the law can be followed. If the law of the land contradicts the goodness of God, it must be resisted and cannot be followed. And so how does this work? Let's take a few case studies. Let's say, I don't know, for the sake of argument that the city says maybe you should conserve energy. Again, this is just highly theoretical. It's just the sake of argument here. Uh, Let's say that the city says you should conserve energy. Is that a good moral law? Should we follow that edict from the state? I would say that aligns with the goodness of God. It promotes human flourishing and love of neighbor. Yes, I see no moral reason to object to such a law. And so we gladly submit ourselves to the law of the land in that case because it aligns with the goodness of God. There's nothing wrong with that. Again, it's, it's just a purely theoretical law. Nothing like that would ever happen. So this is just purely philosophical fun up here. It's not, not applicable at all. Uh, second one, let's consider the speed limit. Um, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I'll give you an, uh, uh, I don't know, a testimony from my own life. I, have, I, I occasionally speed. Um, sometimes I uh, speed actually on purpose with the intent of breaking the speed limit. I know there's a retired DA here and there's other people. I'm so sorry. I'm confessing my guilt before you. Um, my son recently had um, an allergic reaction and I had to get him to the hospital. And so I put him in the, the car and I did not say, hmm, is this a school zone or is it 30 or 35? I said, I'm going to the hospital. And I called 911 and I said, I'm on my way to the hospital and I'm coming and I'm going fast. <laughs> um, I think that was for the goodness of people. It's for the love of neighbor. It's for the love of others. It is a, a morally defensible position, I believe. And I see the retired DA not in your head. So I'm, I'm good, right? I'm good. <laughs> but you know, nothing like that would ever happen. You never have to, to break the speed limit for any sort of reason, right? There are times when it's not morally defensible. Uh, like maybe you get out of church and you're trying to get to H-E-B to get that last gallon of milk and so you speed. (laughs) Uh, I would argue that might be selfishness. It may not be morally defensible. And in fact, you might want to call that, you 
Maybe you could call it sin. Wow, Romans 13 is really fun and philosophical until it's not, right? Until it's actually maybe a little too real for the sake of things. Let's make it, uh, maybe our work is a little bit harder. Let's make it a little more real here. What if the government, for the sake of argument, decides to round up all those of Japanese ancestry in the wake of World War II and relocate them to uh, camps, like 120,000 people? Is that a morally good law? I would say, shame on us. No, it is not. What if the government decides to forcibly remove children from the arms of their parents at the border? Is that a morally good law? I would say, no, it's not. Shame on us. See, Romans 13 is fun and flirty and uh, kind of philosophical until it really begs us to ask some very difficult questions about our function in society. And then we're going to have to ask the function about us as Christ followers in the midst of society. And so for Paul and for us, we need to understand our relationship with our state. We need to understand that you and I, we don't worship any state, regardless if it's Roman or American. And this Lenten season, we are going to work hard on remembering whose we are. We're going to work hard on taking concepts of our faith and applying them to our life here and now. So it's not just word service, but it's actions of our heart and postures of our whole being as we engage in our community. We are people of God. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our politics are those of Jesus. Our allegiance is with the kingdom of God. Our, our morality must align with the law of love, and our social action seeks to help the least, the last, and the lost. We work to free the oppressed, clothe the naked, house the cold, share water with those under boil notices, and break bread together, because you can't find it at Kroger. <laughs> so which laws do we follow? We follow the ones that align with the goodness of God. And which laws do we break? Those that contradict the goodness of God. May we have the courage to figure out which ones are which. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.